Psalm 146 this morning. It says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord.
Scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, reads as follows. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks this morning for your word, your word that never fails. A lot of things in this life fail. They don't last. They are not eternal. Yet, Father, we give thanks that the truth is that your word is in fact eternal. It, in fact, is what it's, it's set out to do, it, it will accomplish. It's unchanging, no matter the time, and for that we give thanks. Pray that you'll bless our time in a familiar passage. And Father, maybe we will have a new depth to, to old truths this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be page 857, 857. Nearly every year, it seems, that on our children's birthdays, at some point, uh, Amanda will recount uh, their birth story. Right? We'll go through the day, uh, she'll share details about what time they were born, how long their labor took, they're all proud when they're the fastest one, right? Uh, how big they were or, or weren't, et cetera, et cetera. You know all those, those details. Um, but now and then, um, much of the story, but by now, much of the story is, is known to them. Most of them have retained most of it. Uh, but even still, they, each year it seems as though there's a detail or two that's a little bit off or they want clarification or ask a question about something. Well, in Luke chapter 2, we find the most detailed account of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and it is what we would think of as the classic Christmas text. We only read verses 8 through 14. Certainly the first seven verses are, are quite familiar to, to many of us here. But this passage, along with uh, Matthew chapter 1, give us a, a pretty complete, uh, pretty comprehensive picture of the birth of Jesus. But even with these accounts, even with these scriptures that are available at, to everyone all year long, right? Nobody is, uh, there's no lock on these, uh, these chapters the rest of the year. Uh, even though they, they are available, many uh, Americans actually do not know the true story of the birth of Jesus. That might be surprising for some of you because some of us were raised in a time where it seemed like everybody knew the birth story of Jesus. Well, that is 
Just not true. According to a survey done by Lifeway Research, slightly more than one in five, one in five Americans, so 22%, say they could accurately tell the Christmas story found in the Bible from memory. A plurality of U.S. Uh, adults, 31%, say they could tell the story but may miss some details or get others, uh, get others other details wrong. Another 25% could give a quick uh, overview, they think, uh, then 17% say they couldn't tell any of it. So to say that the birth story of Jesus is worth us rehearsing again might be an understatement, right? Uh, you may think you've heard it before, and you probably have. Uh, however, it seems that even uh, in America, and even in the church, for that matter, uh, there are um, some misunderstandings about what is actually happening, uh, what happened actually at the birth versus what happened after his birth. Uh, but here, Luke gives us details about the lead up to the birth of Jesus, uh, the birth itself, and the subsequent announcements, as we will see it today, what we will refer to as the angel's song. Right, so birth announcements uh, are not new, right? Uh, we, you've, you've heard birth announcements before. The earliest newspapers are said to have carried announcements. It wasn't until the 19th century that announcement cards are said to have begun to be sent out to, to announce the birth. Uh, today, uh, much of those kinds of announcements have been re replaced by the ubiquitous and impersonal social media posts. Don't be offended if you just posted about your child's birth. It's okay. Uh, but no matter the medium, no matter the, the method, nothing, no, no newspaper, no card, no Facebook post can hold a candle to the birth announcement of Jesus that we read in Luke chapter 2. Right? There's no comparison to this account. And we'll, let, let, let's look at it now, first with the proclamation of the good news. Uh, read it with me again, or follow along in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord showed, an angel of the Lord showed around, excuse me, appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, it, it, it's stating the obvious to say, um, you and I would be terrified too right? Uh, this is not to beat up on the shepherds. Uh, the, the idea that, that you're minding your own business and it's clearly it's nighttime and in comes a, a, an angel, right? A spiritual being um, around it. And, and you too would be really, the word here is, is some of your Bibles say sore afraid. That's the old King James or, or terrified, right? You don't know what, what's happening. Uh, but, but more than just a a, an angel showing up, what we actually see is that the glory of the Lord showed around them. So if, if an angel wasn't enough, the glory of the Lord is there too, which would again terrify anyone. Uh, this glory is the manifest presence of God. When God's presence is manifested to us or to someone, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in Joseph, excuse me, uh, Moses in the temple, Exodus chapter 40, Solomon, I wish I could read my notes, Moses in the tabernacle and Solomon in the temple, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, Psalm chapter 26 verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house in the place where your glory dwells. Right? This idea of the presence of God, the, the manifest presence of God, sometimes we say we, we might feel the presence of God, that's not the same thing. 
That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about feeling the presence. We're talking about the actual presence of God being here in a manifest way, in a, in a literal way, in a way that we cannot just feel but see. Like that's what's happening here. It's, it's unbelievable, right? We, we should be shocked by it, and clearly the shepherds were shocked by it. That the spiritual world does, in fact, exist. Right? Uh, but the material world, that's what, what we live in, we're, we're far more comfortable with, with everything being material, right? Something you can touch, something you can control. So, so when the, the spiritual meets the material, there's reason for, and likely reason for, fear. Consistently, when the spirit world invades the material world, those there are, um, those present are afraid. We, we already saw that in chapter one of Luke, when Mary was met with, with an angel, when Zechariah was met with an angel. What were their responses? Their responses were to be afraid. What, what, what is going on here? But even as those responses are consistent, so is the response from the, the spiritual being. And look at the rest of verse 10, or the beginning of verse 10. To their fear, the angel says to them, fear not. Right? That the response to, to someone being afraid of the angel, the angel saying, don't be afraid. That's what he says to Zechariah in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. What he says to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. What is said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus frequently says this throughout the Gospels. When he comes upon someone and they're afraid, he says, do not be afraid. We could recount all of those texts as well. But the angel didn't just say, don't be afraid, right? Just knock it off. Don't be afraid. <laughs> now he gives them actually a reason to not be afraid. Look at the rest of verse 10. For behold, because, look, listen, because of this, what? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Right? Why don't they have to be afraid? Because the, the angel has a message of good news. You're not afraid of good news. Right? We welcome good news. These days, man, we're really looking for good news, right? You turn on the TV and you see nothing but, but bad news. You, you open the internet, right? Nothing but bad news. And here, why do we need to be afraid? It's, it's good. This is good news. And who is the good news for? Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, in an immediate sense, he is talking to the, the the Jewish people. He's talking to Israel. He's talking about Israel. But it is certainly uh, extended to all of humanity. As we continue in the, the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and we read um, Jesus' words in John 3 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So th this good news is, in fact, for all the people. That's you. That's me. You are part of, we are part of all the people. Verses 11 and 12 tell us what the good news and the reason for the good news. For, or because, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. L listen to the similarities of Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For to us a, a child is born, to us a son is given. You see the similarity between those two texts? This prophecy of Isaiah being now fulfilled in Luke 2, the angels using similar language here. And the angels offer details about this birth. 
born this day. The time of the birth is born this day. Now, we could get into a conversation or discussion about when Jesus was actually born. Was it actually on December 25th, right? Some people would would kind of scoff at that. Uh, Some people think it was in the spring. Uh, There were actually early, early church fathers There are some who actually do think it was on on December 25th, Uh, not related to any pagan holiday, but due to the gestation period of uh, a mother believing that she was uh, conceived, that that, uh, Jesus was conceived on March 25th, nine months later. So you can take that for what it's worth. That's a discussion for another time. But what the angels are saying here is born this day, at this time, the child has been born. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born, he was born at the right time. Galatians chapter four, verses four through five says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the angels are saying, we got news. There's there's a birth born this day at this time, at the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. But not only was he born at the right time, but he was born in the right place, in the city of David. The city of David is Bethlehem. This was in fulfillment with the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem. Now you'll remember that Mary and Joseph were not not living in Bethlehem. They were living in Nazareth. They had to go to Bethlehem because of a census. This was no coincidence. John Piper uh, writes this. Have you ever thought what an amazing thing it is that God ordained beforehand that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, as prophesied in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and that he so ordained things that when the time came, the Messiah's mother and legal father were living in, not, not living in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth, and that in order to fulfill his word and bring two unheard of insignificant little people to Bethlehem that first Christmas, God put it in the heart of Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world should be enrolled, each in his own town. The decree for the entire world in order to move two people 70 miles. Piper continues, he, speaking of God, is a big God for little people. We gloss over some of these details because we've heard it all before. But the fact that they weren't where they needed to be, and God sovereignly moved them the way he did, is an amazing thing. It tells us, again, of the sovereignty of God, not just in Mary and Joseph's life, but in your life. You might say, well, I'm no no Mary, I'm no Joseph. Well, Mary and Joseph were, were two unheard of, insignificant little people. Maybe you find yourself to be a little person. Maybe you don't think your life matters. God used Caesar Augustus 
to, to, to declare a census in order to move to people. Could he have done it a different way? Sure, he could have done it a different way. But this is how God did it. This is how he is orchestrating the events of the world, not just for, for purposes unknown to us, but purposes that can be known. Here we see one. Well, the ages continued and identified who, who had been born. The rest of the verse, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the identity of the one who has been born. And here we see three titles. They're common titles of Jesus, Savior, Christ, Lord. But this is the only time they're all together here in Luke chapter 2. Back in Luke chapter 1, we saw that, that, that uh, Mary talked about be, uh, raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. This salvation, this, this one who would save. This is why it's so good, isn't it? This is why it's good news of great joy, because a Savior had come. But, but why do we need a Savior? Because we are sinners, right? It's not good news if you don't know that you're a sinner. See, God sent Jesus to meet our greatest need. And our greatest need was not a political leader to usurp Rome. It was not a soldier to take the government by force, but rather a Savior to redeem us from sin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a savior, our savior. But not only that, he's the Christ. Sometimes uh, when we hear this word used, we hear it very closely in connection with Jesus, Jesus Christ. And we sometimes think as though maybe that's uh, a middle name of Jesus, it is not a middle name of Jesus. It is a title. It is a title of Jesus. That's something very different. Christ, the word Christ in the Greek is, is the word for Messiah. The anointed one. The, the promised one. We see it used in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 and verse 7 in the genealogies. See, calling Jesus Christ was not a small thing. It was actually a pretty big deal. It was pretty significant because he was... It was saying something about who he was. Right? It's identifying him as the promised one from, from the Old Testament. The one the prophets had been told about or told, had foretold about. The one that, that God's people had waited for. The, the child of the virgin who would be called Emmanuel. The baby son upon whose shoulders the government will one day rest. The eternal king from the line of David. God incarnate. God in flesh. Deity meaning humanity. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And Jesus Christ came to fulfill God's promises. And that is, in fact, what he did. Thirdly, the third title we see is that he is Lord. In the Bible, this word Lord is used for God himself. So we see the word Lord sometimes in your Bibles. It is in all caps, uh, but, but nevertheless, the, the idea of the Lord is, is identifying with Jesus. So when used here in reference to Jesus, it was saying that Jesus is God, right? That Jesus is the king, that, that this Messiah, in fact, is Christ, who is God. Being called Lord highlights that he's sovereign, that he has authority, that he has rulership, right? So if Jesus is ruler... If Jesus is king, then that makes you and me, what? Not king. 
right? We're not king. We're servants. We're in submission to him. And so when we recognize that Jesus, not only is Savior, not only is he the anointed one, but he in fact is God. He in fact is king. He in fact is ruler. Then what is the rightful response but, but to bow and to worship and to give ourselves to him? Our refusal to bow to him is rebellion. It's a rebellion against the king of the world. And left to ourselves, we will do just that. We will rebel. We want it our way. We want to do it our way. We don't like people telling us what to do. Most of us do not like that at all. That rebellion, that unbelief is cause for the judgment of God. It's cause for the wrath of God. Because in our rebellion, we are now the enemies of God. The announcement of Jesus as Lord is the declaration of God's rule. That he is king, that he reigns. And therefore, we must confess that he is Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised from the dead, we will be saved. Let's go on to verse 12. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Finally, the the angels offer a a sign. How do we know this is actually going to be true? How do we know this baby is actually what, what you say it is? Well, he's going to be uh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And we find actually that this came after the, the actual event, right? It's a birth announcement. It's not a prophecy. So if we look back earlier in the text, we can find that in verse 16, or excuse me, um, a little bit later in verse 16, Look at verse 16. <laughs> and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Right? Just as the, the angels had prophesied that, that that had already happened, we saw earlier in verse 7, but now the, the, the shepherds go and they actually see what the angel had said uh, would happen. There's the sign, the sign that it actually would happen. There is good news. There's great joy in this good news because the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the God King himself has come to earth. And in his coming, in his coming, the angels reveal two great purposes. We see them in verses 13 and 14, 14 namely. Look at verse 13 first. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Right, again, we said if, if one angel isn't enough, then we've got the glory of God. And now, more than just one angel in the glory of God, which should be enough, now we have a, a, a heavenly host, a multitude of heavenly hosts. Suddenly, a multitude of heavenly hosts. Right, when we say uh, a multitude, we mean thousands or a myriad of angels. A, 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 a heavenly host or an angel army, right, appears to these shepherds in the field. And what are they doing? They're praising God. We, we don't really have a category for this. Right? Um, we don't actually have an imagination that can comprehend this. In, in Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John has a vision of what is to come. And in that vision, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne... Uh, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It saves the loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and glory and blessing. 
Right? We don't have a category for it, but the scriptures do give us these, these word pictures of what it was like. In response to what Jesus had done, the angels got in line with how everyone else had responded in praise. That's how Mary responded. That's how Elizabeth responded. That's how Zachariah responded. That's how the shepherds responded. We're going to see next week how that's how Simeon responded. All of them, when they heard about Jesus, they responded with praise. Praise is the rightful response to the presence of God and the work of God. Psalm chapter 150 is repetitive, but they get it right. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Verse 14 tells us what that praise sounded like. Verse 14 says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here we see the two great purposes for the birth of Jesus, glory and peace. Glory to God in the highest. Glory is the word doxa in the Greek, and it means praise or honor or um, to magnify or to esteem. Isaiah chapter five, 6 verse 3, Isaiah has a vision uh, of, of being transported into the glory of God and he sees the, the seraphim and their response to God calling one to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here are the angels ascribe glory to God. As they did in Isaiah chapter 6, we see it in Luke chapter 2. They ascribe the glory to God, where? In the highest. So the glory goes where? To God. Where is God? In the highest. What is the highest? The highest is his dwelling. It's, it's his abode. Psalm chapter 113 verses 4 and 5 says, The Lord is high above the nations, in his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? That's where God is. God is on high. He, he's he, quite literally, he's looking down on the heavens and the earth. Psalm 113 goes on to say, this is good news of great joy. And this good news of great joy means that God gets the glory. God gets the glory in the gospel. And what do we get? Peace to men on earth. Verse 14 actually says, in on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But do you, do you see the symmetry in those two statements? God, glory goes to God in the highest. Peace goes to men on earth. But not just any man, huh? Jesus did come that we might have peace. That's absolutely true. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 calls him the Prince of Peace. Luke chapter 1, verse 79 says that he came to guide our feet in the way of peace. John chapter 16, verse 33 says, In me you have peace, speaking to his disciples. In the world you have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what is this peace and how can we have it this morning? Well, peace has always been a big deal, right? It's always been something that people have, have sought after. In Rome, Augustus is said to have declared uh, what, what is called Pax Romana, which is to say an, an empire of peace. Peace in, in the empire, there would be peace. But, but that peace is not nearly what the angels were singing about. That peace is not what, what this peace of God that the angels are proclaiming. This peace this word peace in the, in the Hebrew is the word shalom. It's the word for well-being or harmony 
or security. It means that all is well. It means that everything is right. Now you might say, man, I don't know about that. (laughs) Then maybe we don't have peace. We don't have peace on this earth. You're absolutely right. We do not have peace on this earth. The peace that he brought were to the men on the earth, right? Not to earth itself. That's coming yet future. This is more though than physical healing. This is the idea of wholeness or completeness. It doesn't mean that every little problem goes away, but that in all of the problems, we can know it is well. But who is this peace for? And how can we receive it? One Bible commentary helps us here. It says, God's peace is not given to those who have goodwill, but to those who are, are recipients of God's will or God's favor. So that this peace on earth is available, but it's only for those with whom he is pleased, as the angels said. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 942. The question is, how can you have this peace? Those with whom God is pleased, well, how how can I be one of those? Romans chapter 5, verse 1 helps us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this is Romans 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is comes through justification, being declared righteous. In the eyes of God, being declared righteous, being seen with the righteousness of Christ himself. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares us righteous, based not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that is given to us through repentance and faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12 says, For our sake, he made him, God made Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How can you have the peace? How can you be at peace with God? Through justification. How are you justified? Through Christ. You want peace. We all want peace. Here's the truth. Without Christ, we are the enemies of God. We are under his wrath. We are condemned and we are destined to live in fear. But for those who've been justified, those who've come to God through Christ in repentance and faith, we move from enemies to friends. We move from under wrath to under grace. We move from condemnation to acceptance. We move from fear to peace. John Piper wrote a little book on Christmas called The Dawning of Indestructible Joy. He writes this, God's purpose is not to give you peace separate from himself. His purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. The key to peace is keeping together what the angels kept together, the glory of God and peace to man. A heart bent on sharing God's glory will know the peace of God. This peace is foundational to all other peace, right? If we're not at peace with God, we'll never know the peace of God. You'll never know the peace with one another that the Bible talks about either. All this comes through Christ. 
And you can know that peace too. That's the beauty. And when the angels come and they present this good news of great joy, they say it's for all the people. They say glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom God is pleased. And you can be one of those people. How? Romans 1, through Christ. It's through Christ, through repentance and faith in Christ that we can be made at peace with God. We can be reconciled. We can receive the forgiveness of sins and salvation, which is eternal. How? Because of what God has done. Because God has come. Because Christ has come. Because deity entered humanity in order that we might receive the forgiveness of sins and be made at peace with God. So yes, glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that Christ has, has come. That Jesus, the Savior, our Lord, the Messiah has come. Come to redeem. Come to save. Come to do for us what no one else could do for us. Fathers, we rehearse part of the Christmas story again this morning. I do pray that what is familiar to us today would not get, get so, so lost in commonality that we miss the beauty that we miss the love of God for us come as a baby. Not just to, to stay as a baby, but to live and to die, rising again that we might have life, that we might have peace with God, that we would be brought back to you, reconciled to you. So God, we pray that you would give us a, an understanding of that. For those who sit here this morning and, and recognize that they are not at peace with you, that when their day comes, they, they have no assurance of where they stand with you. God, would your spirit open their eyes for them to know that there is a way. There's only one. There's a way for them to be made acceptable to you. And it's not through their good works. It's through the Son of Jesus. It's through the work, the Son of God, Jesus, in his work for us. God, we pray that you would open their eyes to that, that they would confess their sins, they would trust you as their Savior and rejoice today that, that Christ has come, that you have come, God, for us to seek and to save that which was lost. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our God, you raise